1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. This is the word of God, and it is, it's eternally true. Heaven and earth will pass away before the, the smallest comma, punctuation mark, Hebrew dot will pass away. Paul called him the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Right away, we look at the first verse, Paul called as an apostle. And I have noted before when we've studied Galatians and a couple of times studying this text that when Paul goes into a situation, he is not ashamed about identifying his office. And there needs to be a reclaiming of the notion of an office today, because hating authority, we don't think of offices. If you ever go to a graduation and you see all the professors marching, you'll see that they have a hood on, and they're all different colors, and those colors signify where they went to school and got their terminal degree, usually their their doctorate. And those hoods also signify an office, all right, a rank, And an obligation, a responsibility, and authority. And so Paul, right at the beginning, says, Paul, an apostle. And so we see not here an educational rank, an educational office. We don't see a civil office. We don't see a military office. We don't see a law enforcement office. We see an ecclesiastical office. In other words, a church office. And in this day, when everything is said to be a matter of me and Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus does not have relationships with individuals that bypass the church and the officers that he put in place. Because then the next thing you see in the text is Paul, an apostle, and then what does it say? It says an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the one who created the office. Jesus Christ himself is the one who has put the apostle Paul in the office. And so the apostle Paul is sort of, hey, I had nothing to do with it. I was on the road to Damascus, and God whooped up on me through Jesus Christ. And now I've been put in the office, and so don't look at me. I'm just the piano player. But I have the office, and now when I write you, I'm going to put my badge on, okay? You come up, you, you have the badge, all right? An apostle of Jesus Christ. 
So he's writing with authority, and today, always in the church, one of the ways to choose a good church is to see whether the officers have authority. If they say, Tim, a dorky 56-year-old dude, I have some thoughts for you. I mean, I wonder whether. Then there's no authority. Uh, And no man wears his authority easily. It was not dignifying to the Apostle Paul to maintain his office. The Apostle Paul did not like having to talk about being an apostle. Um, If you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll see it pains Paul. It greatly pains him to have to assert the prerogatives of his office. He doesn't enjoy it. And sometimes when I'm dealing with a man who has never had the fear of his father put in him and therefore has no fear of any authority and certainly not God. Sometimes I think to myself, I should look at the man and say to him, it is Pastor Bailey. But I've never yet said it, I don't think, because I really don't want to wear the office that publicly. Enough people call me Pastor Bailey as it is, and it really irks me. And yet, I am a pastor. And so when I speak, I should say, Pastor Bailey says to you sometimes, I shouldn't say the words, but there should be a a notion when you go to visit a church and you're choosing a church, there should be a notion that somebody there has some understanding that the officers of the church have authority. Now, immediately think of your, think of, think, you know, Linda, you teach. You know, think if there were never grades of a teacher. We got an email yesterday from one of our friends who's a school teacher up in the public school district where we used to minister. And uh, she was saying how much she loves to teach and how much she hates to grade. She says, if I could just teach without grading, I'd be happy. Well, the school system forces teachers to evaluate In other words, at some point, the authority of the teacher is clear. This is the way churches should be. You should understand when you go to a church that there are officers in the church and that to go to that church, you must submit to them. And if there's never anything about that, it's not a biblical church. It's not a biblical church. It's just a way of fleecing the sheep. It's a way of getting money from the sheep so that you can kind of be religious and go home and not work during the week. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, Paul did not make this up on his own. Don't look at him. He's just the piano player. And Sosthenes, our brother. Now, who is Sosthenes? If you look at Acts 18, you'll find that there was a leader who was uh, persecuted, likely. We're not sure about this, but it appears that he was persecuted. And it was in Corinth. And so we're assuming that this Sosthenes is the same man that Acts 18 speaks about. It doesn't really matter. What does matter is that Sosthenes is not at the end of the letter, but at the beginning. Normally, these names are at the end of the letter. You know, Timothy also sends his greeting, right? But here, Sosthenes is right up front. So what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that Sosthenes is joining in the writing and the authorship of this letter. 
This is Paul saying, I'm not here alone as an apostle. I'm here with Sosthenes. Apparently, Sosthenes had a reputation in the church such that for him to put Sosthenes next to him strengthened his leadership, his authority, his influence. Paul and Sosthenes. So it's not Paul, I'm the apostle and I don't need anybody else because God's given authority to me. Paul is always dragging anything in he can in order to make his leadership and shepherding of the church stronger. And so he adds Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Notice it is the church. It's the definite article, not the indefinite. It's not one of many churches. I have a fantasy, you know, that someday we'll get back to the church of Bloomington. How? I have absolutely no idea how to do it. (laughs) In fact, I would say that a large amount of the elders' meetings and discussions out of meetings are taken up with seeking the unity of the churches of this community. And that's a surprise to you. Uh, We had one elder who went and met with a pastor of another church for two hours recently seeking unity. I did it about four weeks ago with another pastor, and I have to say that mine paid off a lot better than the other one paid off, (laughs) which has nothing to do with me doing a better job at all. That's something you learn in the elders meeting is we all tend when somebody has a hard job to do and they come back and say they failed, we all tend to say, well, if I'd been there, it would have gone well. Thank you for laughing, David. (laughs) And usually it, well, we'll get back to that later. I'll bring it up again. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, what is that word sanctified? To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified comes from a Greek word that means pure, holy, set apart, dedicated. I like to say peculiar. And then knowing most people don't use the word peculiar anymore, I like to say the word weird. Because it gives you a feeling for what sanctified means. It's somebody who belongs to God instead of this world. And as I told you many times, nothing will more perfectly make you into God's snowflake than sanctification. Because the more you're sanctified, the more you're going to be beautiful as God has made you, the more you're going to be handsome as God has made you, the more individual and absolutely gorgeous you're going to be as a human being, as a man, as a woman. Why? Because the world presses you into its mold. The more you give in to goth, the more you look like all the other goth dudes. And there ain't nothing creative, ain't nothing artistic, ain't nothing unique, ain't nothing peculiar, ain't nothing holy, ain't nothing pure, ain't nothing integrated, ain't nothing interesting about that. (laughs) You know, what's interesting about goth? I mean, the whole point of goth is to say, I ain't interesting, and I want to die yesterday. (laughs) The world is weary, and I'm young. How do you get weary of life when you're young? And how do you think it's good to tell people that? But in Christ, all things have become new. In Christ, everything about us becomes weird, peculiar, holy, set apart, sanctified. 
we have this uh, sanctimonious approach to sanctification <laughs> where we hear the word sanctify, you know, and we think, oh, yeah, sanctify, 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 you know, and we think it's some, you know, special state that you get in if you learn to meditate and do yoga in a Christian way. And that's not what it is. Sanctification is being set apart. In the Old Testament, if you were to take an animal and that animal was going to be given to God as a sacrifice, that animal would be referred to as devoted to the Lord. If they were going to, if they were going to wipe out a village, the village was devoted to the Lord. What's the meaning of sanctification? Devoted to the Lord. You're going to be burned up for God. And so sanctification to those who have been, past tense, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification is a weird thing because how can you speak of them having been sanctified in Christ Jesus? Because those in the church are always those who publicly proclaim through their baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through these physical sacraments, that they have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us as a church. And it's a very public physical thing. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, very visible, very physical, very public, very divisive. Those who are in Christ have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ, and they are set apart and devoted. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right? This is the church. Now, remember who this church is. Incest. Division, pride, arrogance, sophistry. Denying the resurrection of Christ and of us. Those who have been sanctified. All right. In Jesus Christ, they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Saints by calling. And here we have a fulcrum or a, a lever or a whatever it is. But here we flip-flop a seesaw. Because we look back, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And uh, 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 this is an exaggeration, but I'll make it. Exaggerations are, are useful. Um, the entire evangelical world is a conspiracy to deny the second half of that seesaw. The entire evangelical world is a method of getting you to focus on who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, all right? And never think about saints by calling. <laughs> focus on the past. Don't ever look to the future. And if you can, forget about the present. <laughs> Why? Well, because if you can look back to a conversion experience, if you can look back to a time when you prayed the sinner's prayer when you were, you know, led to the Lord Jesus Christ and you first had your eyes open to the blood of Jesus Christ and claim what is true from that moment on, which is you have been sanctified, then you don't have to think about what the present is. And the present is bloody. The present is difficult. The present is muddy and messy and hard. The present only happens by the exercise of authority and the submission to it. <laughs> and you say, well, where did that come from? And I say, well, wait until after verse 9 in 1 Corinthians. 
Because what he's doing is he's softening them up for the exercise of authority, which will sanctify them. And so what he's doing is saying, you have been sanctified. It is your calling. You haven't been sanctified to live in, you know, comfort and convenience and worldliness and wealth and, you know, a hope of the future of going to heaven. This is one of the great problems with almost every parachurch campus ministry. And every time I'm critical of them, remember, my father and my mother were two of the first 10 staff workers with InterVarsity and planted the first work in New England, lived in Cambridge. So don't get defensive about parachurch ministries. But one of the problems with parachurch ministries is they focus very much on the moment of conversion, and then they've tried to get everybody to focus on the moment of conversion. And the only discipleship is getting everybody to focus on the moment of conversion and help other people have a moment of conversion. There's been no sanctification. It used to be that navigators had a corner on sanctification. No more. (laughs) Because why? Well, because sanctification is bloody. And you don't get a lot of people supporting your ministry the rest of their lives by getting down in the mess with them and getting bloody. Do you understand this? You work on a man and his sanctification, and for every one of David Abbasara, who submits to us telling him, go home and leave Vanessa alone, how many tell us, stick it? I mean, guys, come on, think about this. He had no background in a church. He had nothing, no father, nothing. And we tell him to go home and to bug off. And that's sanctification. And you look and watch and see whether he belongs to Christ. (laughs) Right? And he submits. Why does he submit? It's the strength of my personality. Uh, No, no, no. I see and intim- seem intimidating here, but come in my office and, and what you'll find is that my strength that day was that my wife had told me that David was going to have nothing to do with Vanessa. And she told me to go out and to take a walk with David and to tell him to go home. And I told David that on the walk. I said, you know something, David? Uh, I like you, but my wife is a meanie. Isn't that basically what I said? <laughs> yeah, that's basically what I said. <laughs> well see see mary lee was a shepherd for the soul of the younger women of the church and she was not going to give in with vanessa and so she strengthened me this is sanctification this is the work of sanctification i see so many of you who come for years to this church and do everything you can to avoid sanctification you never get intimate with any of the leadership And if we ever so much as raise an issue with you, you're like angry, (laughs) you know? And I think, dude, you know, what did you think it was about? Did you ever crack the New Testament? (laughs) You know? Well, yeah, the New Testament is a nice book for people that lived 2,000 years ago. Do you think anybody ever actually received the New Testament? (laughs) You know? Do you think the New Testament was anything other than a holy book for 2,000 years later? Do you think that anybody actually got the letter to the Corinthians and got slapped by it? The first service I referred to it as getting taken out to the woodshed. But most people don't know what being taken out to the woodshed means anymore. It's what a dad used to do back when dads were dads. If you had been disrespectful to his wife, he would take you to the woodshed. 
What that means is he'd take you back to the little shed in the backyard where there would be some privacy because there wouldn't be any privacy in homes of one or two rooms. And he would deal with you there, usually very painfully. And so Paul's taking the Corinthians to the woodshed in 1 Corinthians. And so we see sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. If you belong to Christ, he has sanctified you by his blood so that you will be holy. So that you will be holy. You have a calling to be holy. And you go, well, well, there's that sanctimonious work again. I, I just don't get into holiness. And I say, you know, you don't get into holiness because it doesn't appear majestic. It doesn't appear uh, heroic. Holiness doesn't get any good press today. This afternoon, somebody's going to win that football game. And whichever team wins that football game, the quarterback is going to have a wonderful experience that people all over the country are going to enter into vicariously. And I would say that's about the closest to holiness that we have in our culture today. Where one man is viewed as a paragon of virtue, of discipline, of teamwork, of leadership, of passing or running, whatever it is, of poise, he's holy. But for what? For nothing. It's absolutely meaningless. Except as it represents to us some tiny, tiny piece of the discipline and the pain and the submission to authority and the foresight and the study, everything that goes into football and making a good quarterback. Being someone who has to exercise authority in the one place in life where everybody thinks there should be no authority, being someone who constantly has to exercise authority in the one place in life where everybody thinks nobody should have authority, being someone who is called by God and set apart for the exercise of authority in the one place in life where everybody thinks there shouldn't be authority. I fantasize all the time about every other position of authority in society and the way people submit to it. <laughs> you know, football. Every time I think of football, I think of my friends who have grown up playing football, live for football, are Christians, are pastors, are elders, and have absolutely no discipline in their church, no holiness, no sanctification, no submission to authority, and no exercise of authority. And then they watch football. And I'm always in my brain putting things like that together, and I'm trying to figure it out. How does that work? <laughs> How does it work that people that love football can't see any application to their church? Do you know how that works? I don't know how that works. How does it work? Okay. I mean, think about it this afternoon if you watch either of the games. Think about it. Saints by calling. <laughs> you know, where is the ambiguity? Poor Mr. Manning has a bit of a problem today. Because in a little bit of time, he might have to choose. <laughs> is it his hometown or is it his son? Saints 
What does New Orleans represent to us? Saints by calling? Would anybody say anything about New Orleans being saints? Catholic, Roman Catholic, yeah. How about Haiti? How about New York City? How about the Pentagon? Saints by calling? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of that is to show the unity of the body of Christ because they're all divided in the church and they're all fighting amongst themselves. And so he reminds them, you guys, all, all inclusive, all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You know, let's say Ben and I were fighting. Somebody writes this and says, Ben's Lord and yours. Is Christ divided? No, he's not divided. Their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor from God and peace. Approaches what we can see in this life as being the fruit of grace, which is that things are good. Both of them come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No question that Jesus Christ is God. Absolutely no question. All through Scripture, Jesus Christ is God Almighty. The two are one. I thank my God always concerning you. (laughs) Now, I want to say a word to you who are mothers, fathers. Don't discourage your children. Yes, your children have many failures, many sins, many weaknesses, But look at how the Apostle Paul approaches this this household, his children. He approaches them so tenderly and so gently, and his affection for them oozes out of the words. I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God. And he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I thank my God always. How does the Apostle Paul find it in him to take a church that is spitting on him? They can't stand him. They're sick of him. They make fun of him. There are leaders there that are constantly showing themselves to be big and him to be small. And Paul's poured his life into this church. Think of a mother who pours her life into a child who then spurns her and hits her and curses her. A son who refuses to obey his father. This is what that church was to the Apostle Paul. And he writes them saying, I thank my God always concerning you. And so as parents, as elders and pastors, as leaders, as professors, those in authority, we need to remember to to love those under authority and to make that love very, very clear to them. Very, very clear to them. Are you all with me? Don't discourage your children. Don't discourage them. It's hard to be a child. It's hard to grow up. It's hard to become an adult. It's hard to become a dad, to become a mother. And we, those of us who are older, need constantly to be showing our affection and gratitude to God for the younger people here. Other people's children should know that we love them. I'm not the only one that can give out hugs all of you can do it. And this is, 
This is Paul giving out his love to the church. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Okay, next screen, please. That in everything you were enriched in him. Now, that's interesting, enriched. Remember how I was saying that the Corinthian, that Corinth was the the place where all the wealth of Athens, of Greece, had poured? You know, from past centuries, all of it had come to Corinth. So Corinth was just known to be the splendors. Uh, How do you say that? Splendid um, city with wealth and beauty and culture and, and art and everything. And so here Paul is saying, you were enriched in him. They were not rich because they lived in Corinth. They had the best houses. They were not rich because they lived in Corinth. They were enriched in Jesus Christ. The riches they had came from Jesus Christ. Everything else was poverty. But what they had in Christ was riches. In, and now we begin to define the riches, in all speech and knowledge. Now, what are the, the, the Greek words behind that? Well, that word speech is, uh, the root is logos that I was talking to you about a couple of weeks ago. John 1, in the beginning was the logos, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. In all logos and all knowledge, and that's gnosis, which is the origin of Gnostic, which is a really trendy way of uh, whooping up on somebody today if you're a sophisticated Reformed theologian. Um, We call them Gnostic. Well, here Paul is calling them uh, the logos and the gnosis. In other words, they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. So what's the meaning of that? Well, the speech is sort of studying it. What I thought maybe was a good way of communicating it is that speech would be systematic theology. And knowledge would be discernment, understanding, embracing the truth. So they, they had all doctrine and all discernment. Does that help? All doctrine and all discernment. That helps get you a sense of the speech and knowledge. In other words, as they were taught, they had good, good doctrine taught. They were the recipients of wonderful truth. But then they embraced it, they understand it, they discerned. Now think about this, this is Corinth. This is a church in Corinthians. He says, you have been enriched in all doctrine, proper doctrine, and even embracing it, discerning it. How do you get this church out of that? And that's the truth, you know. He says that's the nature of their church. And that church is the church we're going to be studying. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony concerning Christ, it, uh, it, could, it could mean the testimony not just concerning Christ, but of Christ. The, the testimony of Christ concerning Christ having to do with Christ. And so it is Christ's testimony. It's not just Paul's testimony, the apostles' testimony, whoever preaches to them. But it is Christ's testimony. And what we need to remember is that if the gospel is Christ's testimony, this means that Jesus Christ is the one who has told you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died as the propitiation for our sins. And if you go into the classroom, you go into your business office, your practice, wherever you work, and you say, my God, or 
I believe or my religion or I think, what you've done is you've relativized it. You've made it a statement of personal conviction. Where is the sense that this is the testimony of Jesus Christ? People, we need to reclaim a sense of submission to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ testified concerning himself that he was God and that it would be his blood, it would be his death that would purchase us from hell. And that since it's his testimony, it is our duty to make that testimony universal. It has to go right in the face of the world. Yeah, we need to be gracious as we go right in the face of the world. But people, we can't make all these sort of, well, me and my God. What does that say? It's the testimony of Christ or not. If it's the testimony of Christ, then how can we help but be exclusive in our presentation of it. The testimony of Christ concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now, what does he mean by being confirmed in you? Well, look up. It says, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge so that you're not lacking in any gift. Enriched in all speech and knowledge, not lacking any gift. Confirmed in you means that the Holy Spirit has worked in them in such a way that they have fruit that is evident. They have all speech, all knowledge, all doctrine, all discernment, and they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. And this is how the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in them. Now, what's the application of that to us? Well, the application is confirmation of your soul being saved is not that you got a rush when you prayed the sinner's prayer. It's not an emotional experience. The confirmation is that you have been enriched in speech and knowledge, doctrine and discernment, and that you're not lacking. In other words, it is the fruit of the Spirit that is an indication that you belong to Jesus Christ. You have been sanctified in Christ. You have been called to holiness. And today... The proof of the pudding in your life is the fact that the Holy Spirit is producing fruit through you. Listen, there are many times as I look at my sin, which is awful, that the only thing that gives me hope is the fruitfulness of this church. That's it. And when I look at the fruitfulness of the church, I don't think, oh, the elders have done such a good job. (laughs) Because I know the elders. And when the elders think, oh, look at the fruit of my life, they're not thinking, oh, what a wonderful pastors we have. Because the elders know the pastors. What we're thinking is the Holy Spirit is at work here. And that is the proof of the pudding. That's the proof of the pudding. The proof of the pudding is you. You are the proof of of Christ living among us. The work of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, it's confirmed in you. Mary Lee was, and I might have mentioned this last week also, but Mary Lee was reading Jesus 
talking about the parable of the seed and sowers. And then a little bit after that, it talks about how um, the word goes out and at night it produces fruit while you sleep. And that's what Jesus says to us. You know, at night while you sleep, the seed takes and produces fruit. And the point Jesus is clearly making by saying that is, you know, think of, think of Psalm 127 or 128 where it says, he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. In other words, when we're asleep, we have no agency. We're not busy. We're not working. And that's when God produces the fruit. And so we need to focus on the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that produces fruit in this church. We need to pray constantly that he will produce fruit in this church. And then we need to hold that preciously as an indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. And this is true for you as an individual too. That when you get discouraged and you feel like sin is completely victorious in your life, then look. Look at the fruit of your life. And sometimes it'll be almost imperceptible over a course of a few years. Sometimes it'll appear that for a few years you, you've lost ground, right? <laughs> some of you aren't old enough maybe to have, but boy, that's how I'd describe some years, right? Sometimes, well, let me put it a different way. All the time in the church, there are horrendous sins. And sometimes when you deal with horrendous sins in the church, you will have people in your office who will be completely without compunction of conscience. There will be no remorse except about getting caught. And they will have had a conversion experience. They will have been involved in campus parachurch ministries. They will be members of your church. There will be absolutely no repentance that is in any way Evident. None. And they will point back to their conversion experience and say, well, I'm a Christian. But what I want to say to you is, you'll be ready to give up on them and say they're not a Christian. They can't be a Christian. And what you have to say to them is, you know, David, as I look at your life, I see no evidence of you belonging to Jesus Christ. You have to say that. But then years later, and now Mary and I are old enough to be able to say years later, all of a sudden, the soil cracks again, you know, and up sprouts the tiny little sprout, and then it begins to blossom, and you go, whoa, I can remember one man in our church in Wisconsin, Mary Lee and I, as we left, uh, I remember crying on the bed, knowing I was leaving the church, and I remember realizing I was crying because of this man and the terrible wickedness that this man had given himself. And my whole ministry there had been uh, in some way involved in dealing with the repercussions of this man's wickedness in the, his family, other people's families. And as we left, I remember thinking, it is hopeless with this man. It is hopeless. And then years later, all of a sudden, you get the testimony of his pastor saying, you know, the Lord has really been working in that man's life. And so what I want to say to you is the testimony concerning Christ, sometimes being confirmed in you through fruit, will go through years of dryness. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones went through four years, if I remember correctly. Where's Joseph? 
Have you gotten to that point yet? Was it Stephen? Was it four years? Yeah, I think it was four years where he questioned while he was in the ministry that he belonged to Christ. All right. Not lacking in any gift. So in other words, they were really, really blessed by the Holy Spirit, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming when our Lord will come back in power. All the students of Scripture, when they got to this point of the text, said, you know, um, everybody in the early church and the apostolic church highly anticipated the return of Jesus Christ. Now, why did they anticipate it? Well, they anticipated it because there was a clear cost to being a Christian then. You were persecuted. Your life could be taken at any time. And so, of course, they anticipated the second coming of the Lord. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the way they all viewed death or the Lord's return. So what about us today? And I think about this and I think, do we anticipate the second coming of the Lord? Now, why not? Well, because we are completely worldly. We love the things of this world. We love our degrees. We love money. We love cars. We love houses. We love vacations. We love... uh, we love our families. You know, life is good. And so you try to imagine heaven being better, and most Christians, as they talk to me, say, I can't imagine why I'd want to be in heaven. You know, why would I want to be in heaven? I have heaven on earth. Well, this is not heaven. And what you want to see in your life is the older you get, more of a desire to be in heaven. And if you don't have more of a desire to be in heaven as you get older, that's because you're not being sanctified. You're not bloody. You're not submitting to painful authority and growing in Jesus Christ. Because if you grow in Christ, heaven will become precious to you. Isn't that right? Hmm? Nana? That's right. Now, how do I explain the Left Behind series? Theoretically, that's one big orgy of looking forward to Christ's appearing, right? A billion-dollar capitalization at the front of every border and Barnes and Noble bookstore. Everybody read those books, and they're all about the second coming of Christ. So how can I say that we don't look forward to the second coming of Christ? I don't know. Haven't the foggiest clue, but I guarantee you, that's not what this is talking about. I view that literature as cheap escapism. There's nothing against it unless it uses things of God for cheap escapism. But I don't think that that book series really does give us a picture of the second coming of Christ and why it should be precious to us. Maybe a little bit. Some of you that have read it, please don't take offense at what I said. Who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, why will you be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you're Roman Catholic, it's because you've gone through the purification of this life and then you've gone to purgatory until you're blameless. Is that what the text is teaching us? That we will not be able to welcome the Lord until we are blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason we're blameless is that when we face God, we will be declared not guilty by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We will be more holy because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us through the years. And so there will be a sense in which we are more blameless than we used to be. Although many Christians feel that it gets that it goes in the other direction, that they actually become more blamable as their life goes on. So that the Apostle Paul, as he's ending his life, says, I am the chief of sinners. But part of that's because as you get older, you are seeing your sin more clearly. That's part of sanctification. All right. You see your sin more clearly. Certainly, as godly people get older, they don't think, well, now I'm getting close to blameless. And so I'm ready for the appearance of Jesus Christ. What they'll say is, I am so weary of the battle. Can't Jesus take me home and let it be over? And so when Christ returns and you will be blameless, you're blameless because of the work of Jesus Christ applied to your account. Because you will be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I will be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why you'll be blameless. So that's your hope. That's your calling. That's where you're headed. Doesn't feel like it. It's painful. It is difficult. But heck, you know, Super Bowl is not lacking in pain to get there. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. And that's where I want to end. This does not depend upon your zeal. It doesn't depend upon your quiet times. It doesn't depend upon your prayers. It doesn't depend upon memorizing Jude. And you will memorize it, by the way. By the way, a little word to those of you who are men who don't come Saturday morning. You're a fool. If you don't come Saturday morning, you're a fool. Now, how could I say that? (laughs) Because I've gone every Saturday morning for years, and man, do I grow. And there are guys all over the country that would kill for an opportunity to be there Saturday morning. This is the discipleship of men in this church. If you don't come, I remember when I was at Columbia Bible College, and I took a course in the Minor Prophets from, from uh, Buck Hatch, the most revered teacher there at the time. And being a young fool, I didn't study. I didn't apply myself. And when it came to the final, I took the final, and I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know the answer to almost anything. And I remember leaving that final and going back to my room and crying like a baby because I realized that I had despised God's gift to me and that, uh, that I had wasted a precious, precious gift. And so if you don't come Saturday morning, you're a fool. Now, of course, there are extenuating circumstances. There, of course, if your job doesn't allow you, of course, if your wife tells you she'll divorce you if you come, you know, there could be all kinds of very good reasons that you don't come. I'm not talking about those good reasons. I'm talking to the one or two of you. And if you come, you memorize Jude because we're getting serious this Saturday about memorizing Jude. Trust me, you will want to have done your memory work by this Saturday. Trust me. Okay. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? Do you believe that your future does not depend upon memory work? 
being there Saturday morning, having family devotions, spanking your son, do you believe that it's God who is faithful and that he is the one that will do the work? Do you believe that? Does the work seem hopeless to you? Come on. Does the work seem hopeless to you? The work of sanctification in you. Does it seem hopeless? Does it seem hopeless? Allie, does it seem hopeless? It is hopeless. You really are a piece of work. And so am I. How many fights have my wife and I had this week? Seems like they're growing in number the last couple of months. You are hopeless. But God is faithful. God is faithful. God's going to finish the work. He will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were called, and he'll finish the work. If there's one thing a son should be taught, he should be taught to finish the jobs that he begins. And if we recognize with our kids that that's the mark of a good worker, how much more, God? God will finish it. He's faithful. 